When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. When Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, he told his assistant Bill Moyers that Democrats had, quote, lost the South for a generation. In fact, of course, it's lasted a lot longer than that. The white voters who blocked black people from voting and made the solid South Democratic for decades quickly became Republicans after 1965. And today, they are Trump supporters. But the story of Southern Democrats is more complicated than that. And for that story, we turn to Michael Kazin. He teaches history at Georgetown. He's the co-editor of Dissent and a contributor to The Nation. He's written many books. The latest is War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. Michael Kazin, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, the same white Democrats who created Jim Crow after the Civil War and blocked black people from voting for decades also allied on some issues with liberals and progressives from the North during the 1930s, and they supported parts of the New Deal. What's the story here? Well, the Democratic Party was a party that was, uh, I'd say, dedicated to what uh, some authors of a recent book called Egalitarian Whiteness. And both of those uh, words have to be taken seriously. Of course, it was a party of white supremacy. It was a party that supported slavery for a long time, opposed abolition of slavery, opposed the 14th and 15th Amendments in Congress, and as you said, instituted Jim Crow in the southern states, uh, and to some degree in some northern states as well. But at the same time, after all, there was a party that had to win the votes of white uh, uh, working people and small farmers uh, in the South, and where, which was the base of the Democratic Party. And to do that, they took uh, what you might call populist uh, stands, uh, bashing Wall Street, bashing big industrial corporations, uh, uh, calling for uh, certain welfare measures to help uh, white people only. Um, and in the, new, in the 1930s, of course, with the Great Depression, um, many white people in the South, like uh, people of all races everywhere, were in terrible shape, unemployed, uh, losing their land, losing their houses. And so it's not surprising, I think, that that these Dixiecrats, as we later would call them, uh, white Southern Democrats in Congress and also in the states as well, supported unemployment compensation, supported Social Security, uh, supported unions for white people only. Um, and really the change that we now take for granted of, of white Southern voters voting conservative on almost all issues really happens uh, after the Democratic Party embraces civil rights. And that doesn't really happen until the 1940s. So on the, the key... New Deal legislation like Social Security or the minimum wage, how are these structured to benefit only white people? Well, 
take uh, Social Security for a long time. Uh, it didn't cover until the 1950s. It didn't cover uh, agricultural workers uh, or uh, domestic workers, and of course that were the major occupations for black men and women uh, in the country in the South, uh, especially. Um, the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, which was really a, a great step forward for unions. It uh, uh, put the federal government basically in charge of holding union elections and uh, made unfair labor practices by employers to be a violation of the act. Uh, again, that act uh, did not cover agricultural workers and domestic workers. In fact, it still doesn't today. So um, again, these were acts of egalitarian whiteness, uh, what the political scientist Ira Cass Nelson calls affirmative action for whites. And this story of Southern Democrats supporting progressive social welfare legislation actually starts well before the New Deal era. As you write in The Nation, there was a lot of activity in the progressive era before uh, World War I. Uh, let's talk about economic justice legislation uh, under Woodrow Wilson, a white Southern Democrat. Yeah, Woodrow Wilson was, well, he was born in the South. He wasn't, he was uh, from New Jersey when he got elected president. He was governor of New Jersey. Or right, before then. But uh, when the Democrats took over Congress with Woodrow Wilson, actually a couple of years before that, and then uh, enlarged their majorities when Wilson was elected president in 1912, uh, almost all the, the chairmen of all the committees uh, in the House and the Senate, uh, who had the most seniority, uh, which is how he got to be the leader of a committee, uh, were Southern Democrats. And so if any progressive legislation on the economy was going to pass, it was going to pass because of the Democrats supported it. And in fact, Every major piece of legislation that uh, Wilson signed to regulate big business from a major antitrust act to an eight-hour day for railroad workers, and there are many more as well, was basically crafted by a Democrat from one of the states that uh, barred most black people from voting. Uh, so again, this is a great example of the kind of egalitarian whiteness I, I talked about before. One of the biggest challenges to white Democrats in Congress were the anti-lynching bills that the Republicans and civil rights advocates introduced regularly. Tell us a little about the history of anti-lynching bills. Well, this, of course, corresponds to what uh, is a conventional wisdom and uh, correct wisdom about uh, about what Southern Democrats cared about most, I think. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the federal government would not have any say in uh, race relations in the South. Um, and for a time, uh, Republicans, at least some Republicans, supported uh, anti-lynching bills. Uh, they were still thinking about the legacy of Lincoln and for some of them the legacy of abolitionism in opposition to Jim Crow that came right afterwards. Um, but because the filibuster in the Senate, it was very difficult to get a, uh, um, a majority to cut off debate. Um, you needed actually two-thirds of the Senate to, to cut off debate uh, back then. And, and, and so it was, uh, it was very tough to, because, because the southern states, even when Democrats were not in the majority in the Senate, uh, they usually had uh, either two-thirds or close to two-thirds of seats in the Senate. Uh, and so they were able to defeat anti-lynching legislation. And after a while, Republicans sort of gave up on it. Uh, because they figured, what's the point, you know? And uh, some Republicans actually uh, came to agree with Democrats that, uh, well, maybe it's better off if these nice white people uh, um, help, quote, quote, black people to, uh, uh, to have a better life uh, if they feel like it. Uh, so pretty much both political parties gave in to Jim Crow by the 1920s. Anti-lynching bills still have not become law in the United States. I just looked this up. The Senate finally passed 
an anti-lynching bill for the first time in American history on December 19th, 2018. That's a couple of months ago. The House didn't pass it, so the Senate had to repass it, uh, which they just did, uh, I think, in January. This is this is shocking. How can you be? How can you think? Well, lynching that's that's okay. We don't need laws against lynching. I think a Democratic Congress is going to. I think so too. I think so too. If if it could pass a Republican controlled Senate, it could probably pass it pass a Democratic controlled House. Uh, Of course, it it doesn't have the same uh, meaning or importance now uh, once it gets passed because back then it had a lot of meaning because Southern um, uh, juries, uh, all white juries, were just not convicting people for uh, for lynching uh, black uh, people and. And that's why uh, people like Ida B. Wells, the great civil rights uh, uh, activist, anti-lynching activist, uh, pushed so hard for uh, a federal anti-lynching bill so that this would become a federal crime. Uh, Now, because you have civil rights laws uh, 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 and laws against uh, racial hatred and so forth, uh, or acts of racial hatred, you know, it's it's not it's still symbolically important, I think, but it's not uh, juridically necessary. Yeah, it's like it's like apologizing for slavery. It's apologizing exactly. for never having passed an anti-lynching bill when we could when we needed one. Well, uh, would have mattered. Would have mattered. So, if we look at the history of Southern Democrats, probably the most famous Southern Democrat of of the 20th century was Lyndon Johnson, who you know ran for Congress in Texas. Many in the middle of the 20th century. He was a poor boy who grew up in the Depression. He grew up loving FDR. What was his early history as a Southern Democrat? Well, he was elected from a district in his home region of Texas, the Hill Country, west of Austin. And uh, he said as little as possible about civil rights (laughs) in the 1930s when he was elected. And really, didn't take uh, even a mild stand in favor of the civil rights bill until he decided in the mid-1950s he wanted to be president. And he realized that the Democratic Party, which he would need to nominate him for president, had uh, taken a turn and was now in favor of a civil rights bill, uh, at least Northern Democrats. And he'd need to win, of course, Northern Democratic votes in the Democratic Convention to get nominated. So um, when he was a majority leader of the Senate in 1957, he co-sponsored a pretty mild civil rights bill, but it was the first civil rights bill to pass Congress since Reconstruction. Um, and then, of course, once he became uh, president after JFK's assassination, then he he took this historic stand uh, to support the civil rights bill and signed it and also signed the Voting Rights Act. And, uh, you know, he realized, I think, as you said earlier um, in the show, that when he did that, he realized he was probably going to lose, you know, the White South uh, in the 64 election, which he did. <laughs> but he but he felt like he'd win so much else uh, uh, and he'd cement uh, African-Americans as a core uh, constituency of the Democratic Party for so many years to come that it, it wouldn't matter so much. So 1964, Johnson runs on a civil rights, strong civil rights plank. And as you say, uh, white Democrats in the Deep South vote for the Republican Barry Goldwater. Four years later, 1968, white Democrats in the Deep South voted, many of them for George Wallace running specifically as a racist. In 1972, the former white Democrats voted largely for Nixon. But then, hey, what about 1976? Jimmy Carter 
a white Southern Democrat gets elected president, very much not a racist, and he carries the South in 1976. I remember I wrote an article for Dissent Magazine in 1976 saying, this shows that the right kind of white Democrat can still carry the South. I, I think I turned out to be wrong about that, but what exactly made it possible for Jimmy Carter to get back those white Democratic voters who had voted for George Wallace and voted for Nixon? Well, he was an unusual figure, as you know. Uh, he was not a great crusader for civil rights, but he, he was a, what you, I think you have to call a moderate on civil rights. Uh, he wanted to protect the laws already passed. He didn't talk about um, passing more laws. He wasn't a big backer of affirmative action, at least not in the campaign. Um, and I think also um, it was sort of a sense of pride that a lot of, a lot of white Democrats had. Uh, and by the way, most, most white Southerners were still Democrats by then, which they are not now. But, but the registration was still Democratic, even though they, were, they had voted for Richard Nixon in 1972. Uh, but they voted for, for white uh, Democrats uh, for Congress and the Senate for the most part, uh, and also for governor. So um, I think Carter was able to win enough white votes uh, away from the northern uh, 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 Republican president at the time, uh, Gerald Ford. Uh, and, and, and when he put those votes together with uh, votes of, of almost all uh, black Southerners, who by then were voting as well, then he was able to win states like Mississippi and his own Georgia that uh, Democrats uh, haven't won since. But he was unusual in that sense. In 1980, when, when Ronald Reagan runs against him, um, um, a lot of other things were happening too, but most white uh, uh, Southern voters had decided that Carter was too far left for them, too friendly to black people for them, and, and they voted for Ronald Reagan. So it was a, a one-time thing. All right, 2016, Trump carried the entire South, every state except Virginia. That, of course, was a terrible, and it seems ominous for 2020. What do you think? Can Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or somebody else do better than Hillary did in the South as a Democrat in 2020? Well, again, I think as we saw this with the elections uh, last fall, Democratic candidates coming close uh, to being elected governor in Georgia and in Florida. Uh, Stacey Abrams, you know, with a with a honest vote, probably would have won actually. Um, and um, uh, Beto O'Rourke coming fairly close to beating Ted Cruz in, in Texas. Uh, I think it shows that uh, Democrats can at least come very close to winning. Uh, uh, and if they can do come close to winning in a midterm, you think they should be able to come even closer in a presidential election where more people vote. The problem, of course, is that um, you need to have a, a very large black turnout uh, and probably turnout of more recent uh, immigrants, uh, especially from uh, Latin American countries as well, which their, their numbers are growing, of course, in, uh, in the South, uh, as they are everywhere, uh, in order to defeat uh, Trump, who is very, very popular among among most white Southerners, uh, because he seems to be you know, supporting issues they care, uh, care a lot about. Uh, um, opposing abortion rights, for example, uh, you know, taking a, uh, have to be said, a racist stance about uh, immigrants from south of the border and so forth. So, so in some ways, uh, Trump, though he's from, uh, he's from southern New York, <laughs> uh, has become uh, sort of a uh, uh, symbolic southerner, I think. Well, we started out by saying that uh, economic justice issues were able to win the support of southern whites in the mid-20th century, does that mean that Bernie's message would have strong resonance in the South today among whites as well as blacks? I think a lot of his programs would. I mean, if you look at the polls, I think um, 
polls that if you don't say this is Bernie Sanders' program, but you talk about uh, free or very cheap college, you talk about everyone being covered by Medicare, um, you talk about getting the uh, influence of big money out of politics, uh, I think a lot of white Southerners would support those stands. But when they're connected to a guy who calls himself a socialist who's from New York, who's Jewish, so I'm not sure how important that is anymore, but you know, we might find out. Uh, then he, he appears kind of alien, I think, to most uh, white Southerners. But if you had, say, uh, Stacey Abrams <coughs> talking that way, um, she might win more white votes than you think, and certainly Beto O'Rourke probably would as well. So, so I think um, you know, politics, as you know, is, is not just about program or about policy. It's about the the person who uh, is speaking uh, about those programs and those policies, and that and that is always going to matter a lot. Michael Kazin wrote about the Southern paradox, the Democratic Party below the Mason-Dixon line for The Nation. You can read his piece at thenation.com. Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. I love doing it. Thanks. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.